Before switching my attention to audio and books, I was one of the top leadership writers on Medium. On that same list of writers was Claire Liu, who I noticed was pumping out remarkable content week after week. Claire is the CEO of Know Your Team, a software company who are tackling the question, how do I become a better manager? I've long admired Claire's work and found her perspectives particularly insightful. So I was really happy when she accepted my invitation to come on the show. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Claire Lou, how are you doing? I am fantastic, Cody. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm really excited to talk to you. We've been talking about doing this episode for a little while, so it's great to be on the phone with you. <laughs> and yes. uh, I think we're going to yeah. have an amazing conversation around leadership. I don't ordinarily start shows like this. We usually just go straight into the questions, but I want you to tell me and the audience, your origin story. How did you get to be doing what you're doing right now? And then we'll dive into some of the nitty gritty of it. So yeah, lay that origin story on us. Oh boy. The origin story, capital O, capital S. Um, (laughs) I'll give it a shot here. Uh, So I think the most salient place to begin is when I found myself repeatedly saying the phrase, I hate my job over and over and over again about, wow, it'll be almost 10 years ago. So I had started a company coming out of school uh, with some friends that ended up doing really well. It was called the Starter League. And at the time, it was one of the first, it was actually the first beginner-focused software school in Chicago. And it was one of the first coding boot camps um, in the country. And so again, this is maybe 10 or so years ago. So I'd started a company I, you know, I was so young at the time. I was like 22. It was sort of this thing where I was like, is this what I really want to do with my life? I'm not really sure. I felt like I wasn't really doing it for the right reasons. It was more so because I was, um, it felt cool and like impressive to people, which is never, never (laughs) great reasons. (laughs) I later found out to be doing anything. Uh, But that's how I started that first company, uh, very frankly. And so anywho, so after I started that company, I did some reflection about what I really wanted to spend my time doing. And I thought, uh, you know, I think I do want to start my own company uh, one day, but I'm not really sure what. So in the meantime, I think I should go work for someone. And I'd never, I'd never worked for someone before. And so I was thinking it was a good idea. So I went and I ended up working at a early stage e-commerce startup in Evanston, uh, Illinois. So just north of Chicago. And I was there coding maybe for almost two years. And it was a small, small company, small startup. So um, I don't know, maybe seven or so people. And I loved my coworkers. I was doing meaningful work. I was really challenged. I did a lot of, you know, a bit of everything from sales to operations to marketing, even design work. And yet I found myself saying, I hate my job. I hate this. I'm miserable. I hate my job over and over to myself during that time. 
And <laughs> when I was noticing this coming home from work every day, uh, for the first sort of initial sort of, uh, reflections on it, I thought, you know what? I think this is me being a disgruntled millennial. <laughs> I think it's because, <laughs> honestly, you know, I was like, maybe this is because I've never worked for anyone before and I just like need to get used to it. I need to put my head down and just, you know, just, just deal with it. And so I did that for a little bit and I kept thinking, now, you know, I, this, I'm really not enjoying this job. And I started to unpack why that was. And the reason I hated my job so much and found myself, you know, hearing that phrase in my head so often was because of one reason, Cody, and it was because I didn't have a good boss. And it's such a... Uh, you know, when I look back on it, it's, it's like a frustrating thing to admit because uh, my boss at the time, he was a wonderful person, mm-hmm. truly wonderful person, but he was not a good leader. And the most problematic piece of it is that he had no idea that he wasn't a good leader. So he had no idea that he wasn't consistent with everyone in the team. He had no idea that he didn't share vision uh, effectively across the team. He had no idea that progress wasn't shared well within the team, that trust wasn't something that was foundational. And as I observed this, I thought, huh, this, if this is, you know, occurring in, we're such a small company, right? A seven person company. Can you imagine with 17 people, with 70 people, let alone 700, right? How persistent is this problem of leaders not knowing that they're not very good at what they're doing? And I'd, I'd studied learning in organizational change when, when I was in college. I'd actually even worked at a venture capital firm very briefly and helped incubate ideas and actually feedback in the workplace was one of the ideas that I'd, I'd vetted. But had known that just from a historical standpoint, an academic standpoint, that the problem of helping leaders become better, uh, creating more open and honest work environments was persistent. And no one had really quite figured it out. So I thought, okay. I'm going to, <laughs> Love it. Uh, you know, uh, I, I literally decided I'm going to make this my life's work. So I quit my job and had about 10 months of savings in the bank and thought, all right, here I go. I'm going to start a company and try to solve this problem. No idea what it, what the solution is going to be. Truly no idea, but I just want to figure out a solution. And if it takes me literally 50 years, I don't, I don't really care. I just, that's, that's what I want to want to commit myself to just felt like this problem was so important. And to this day, I feel like it's, it's so important to, to figure out. So I ended up starting first a consulting practice, working uh, individually with CEOs who felt like they, you know, didn't know how to become better and developing a methodology around helping CEOs create an open and honest environment and work. And as I was developing this methodology, my actual first official paying client was a company called Basecamp, which um, you're likely familiar with and mm-hmm. listeners on the podcast lately, yeah, are familiar with. So for folks who don't know, they make one of the world's most popular project management tools. So they have, I believe, over 15 million customers and have built just this really remarkable company. Um, and their you know, founders are New York Times bestsellers. They've written books and are really you know, you would say thought leaders, I suppose, in, in thinking about uh, building software and, and building remote companies in particular. And their CEO, Jason Freed, and I happened to get connected. 
And I was telling Jason, um, and this is maybe back in 2012, I would say, I was telling Jason, you know, what I was working on and this problem that I'd committed myself to and the methodology I was developing around trying to find an answer to it. And he was like, whoa, wait, Claire. (laughs) <laughs> this is my number one problem as a CEO. I've, I have no idea what's going on in the company. I feel like I'm not, I don't know if I'm being a good leader. I'm probably not. I have no clue. Can you help me figure out how to really uncover the truth in my company? So that's one. Can we hire you to be a consultant for us? And then two, he said, we happen to be building our own software prototype to solve this, this problem. And it's called Know Your Company. So what ended up happening is they became my first consulting client. And then after the consulting engagement ended, which went extremely well, they actually ended up implementing some of the changes I recommended and it was really positive for them. And so that was very rewarding to see. But after that, I, um, he, sorry, he, uh, yeah, so crazy. (laughs) He actually came back, Jason did, and he said, Claire, you know, I have, I have this other crazy idea. We've never done this, but you know, this prototype, know your company I've been telling you about, it's actually doing extremely well. We've started selling it to clients. It's, it's really, it's hot, like it's a hot product, but I actually think it could be a business. So I have this idea. We don't really want to deal with it. And we think someone else could could do it better. What if we actually spun out Know Your Company to be its own separate standalone company, separate and independent of Basecamp? But what if you became the CEO and we split equity 50-50 and you grow the whole thing and run the whole thing? And what do you think about that? (laughs) And I was 24 at the time, Cody, yeah, which was, (laughs) (laughs) and I was like, huh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I said, uh, yeah, (laughs) like, where do I sign? Insane. Truly insane. There, yeah, I, I still reflect back on on that time and think that is very fortuitous. Really, don't know how to explain that to other people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but that and so we we cut a deal and then I became the CEO of uh, what was then called Know Your Company. So today we're called Know Your Team. And so I'm you know I'm happy to talk a bit about that transition. But today, as the CEO of Know Your Team, we make software that helps managers avoid becoming a bad boss. So t- to this day constantly, rigorously still thinking back to that question that plagued me all those years ago, Cody, of I hate my job and it's because of my boss and just trying to, trying to find good answers to that question. Incredible. And (laughs) I can only imagine what that couple of months was like even you know head spinning type stuff I can I'm kind of sitting here having to brace myself a little bit just thinking about it so I can only imagine what it was like being <laughs> in it so I have a Jason Freed story that I'd like to share do you I, I, I would love a, to hear it I have yeah. a Jason story and Let's I hear the Jason story yeah I had not been paying attention to him or his books or base camp or any of the guys there I know they're all great on content and social media had not been paying attention one bit. And then I wrote my book at the end of 2017 and the idea was where others won't. So why, how do sporting organizations treat their people, organize, utilize, develop skill, develop leadership? And how is that potentially better than what we do in the, in the business world? And, and one of the ideas that I had, and this came from my job history, one of my frustrations the ideas that I had yeah. was called the vulnerable job ad. Hmm. And, and you might know where I'm going with this, but the idea was that if you're the Cleveland Browns and you've had 17 quarterbacks in the last 15 years and you haven't 
you know, had a winning season in, in 20 years or whatever it is. You can't go to the market for quarterbacks and lie about that. Everything's in the public domain. (laughs) Everyone can see your culture. They can see your win-loss record. They can see how you develop or don't develop quarterbacks. And so you need to be vulnerable about that process. Otherwise, you end up with no quarterbacks. And so I thought, Mm -hmm. why, why do we still persist with the bravado and the BS in our job descriptions? Because that's that's really our, our first introduction to most people in the market. So if the lies right. start there, how do you think the rest of the relationship is going to go? And, yes. And then, so my, my Jason story is that a couple of months ago, they released this job ad for a, a, a marketing a CMO type role, marketing director, whatever they called it. But it was essentially a blog of just vulnerability. And it went through in detail, you know, what they haven't been doing well and where they don't still do well. And the, the, you know, how this role falls short of what this person might actually need or want at this time. And it just laid it all out there. And it was the most beautiful thing. Again, I'd written a a sub chapter about it in my book. So I was already clued into that idea. But that, that was my story and, and just it's the first time I've seen someone do it and someone openly come out and say, here's our role. It's not everything you think it's going to be. Our company is also not everything you think it's going to be, but here's, here's what we have and we're going to work with you wholeheartedly, whoever comes into this role, to make everything what we think it can be. And I, I think that's just the most magical thing and I've seen it done once. And, and it was by, by Jason and the guys at Basecamp. Wow. I love that story. I think it's, um, God, what a reminder, sadly, in some ways, of how rare that kind of transparency is, especially as uh, in the job market, right? And all these ads you see about, oh, we're the best, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. these awards. And and to your point, like no one, even if you are the Cleveland Browns, no one wants to 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 admit that I, um, I've learned so much from Jason and then also his, his business partner, David about really, and we can get into this, the aspect of leadership that what is only true is what you do. So you can talk about transparency. You can talk about how you value your people yet. What, really only is going to come through and what people will only really believe you on is what you end up doing. So if you as a company like Basecamp, you know, espouse that vulnerability is important, being real is important. Well, of course, Jason and David are going to commit and follow through on that down to the very job ad. And so I, I, uh, yeah, I've learned a lot, a lot from them. And it's, it's so cool to hear you pick up on that. Let's talk about now then. So you've been running Know Your Team now and, and we don't need to get yeah. into the minutiae of it, but what have you, what have you learned? What is, what is your market commentary now having been in yeah. this world and you're, you're, you're starting to answer your own question or hopefully getting closer to, to mm. the, that question that's in your head? So give us a, yes. a, an overall market commentary and feel free to generalize as, <laughs> as much as you need. <laughs> So to say how many hours you got, Cody, I can, I can, I can go as 
you want here. Well, so it's interesting. So a little backstory about even our transition as as a company. So we're 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 pretty weird. So we're a super small company today. We are only four people, and we serve over fifteen thousand people in over twenty five countries. Uh, we've been profitable since month one, and every single year since, and never raised a single dollar. Um, in the process up until literally three months ago where we raised a really small half million dollar round from a wonderful investor partner called NDVC that focuses on profit focused uh, companies. And so we've always optimized as we've thought about our own company for first and foremost, thinking about the best means to solve the problem, which means being able to solve the problem at our own pace in our own way. And so that really meant being independent. So I was very keen on making sure we didn't bring on investors that, uh, the people that I really wanted to listen to first and foremost were our customers. So managers, employees, and, and CEOs and to best solve the problem for them. So even in the design of how we thought about designing and, and structuring the company itself, it's been really intentional around making sure we can solve this problem and around the problem itself. So originally, you know, five years ago when I first took over as CEO of Know Your Company, and that's what it was called back then, the tool was very much focused only on one specific aspect, which was how do you help CEOs of small companies, so 25 to 75 employees, get honest feedback? And that was purely what the tool was focused on. Mm -hmm. And we did really, really well. And like I said, you know, we were literally profitable in our first month. We, we were a two-person company for the first like four years of the business. Like I didn't need to hire anybody else. It was just very, very successful without having to do so. And, you know, having studied leadership <laughs> extensively over the past almost 10 years, it was, you know, my thought was actually the, the fewer people you have to manage, the better. Uh, that was my preference. <laughs> so we were really, we've always been <laughs> super small and I can get into that more. Um, but the interesting thing started happening in the past year when we noticed that as much as the problem of CEOs getting feedback was important, there was a bigger problem at play, which was we had so many managers writing me, Cody, saying, Claire, I need help on being a better leader. I just got promoted last week and I have no idea what to do. Or I'm having my first one-on-one -on -one meeting with a direct report and I have no idea. And I write a ton on our blog. It's the Know Your Team blog, as you know, and we have you know hundreds and thousands of people viewing our, our articles. And what we noticed is that we had this giant amount of traffic all around primarily our articles that were particularly around leadership and becoming a new leader. Yeah. So as this was happening and as we were seeing tremendous growth on the engagement and the spread of our content, our sales for Know Your Company actually started to stagnate, if not drop in the past year and a half. And so we were like, huh, what's, hmm, what's going on there? And then this other really interesting thing happened, which is that we started a online leadership community. Uh, it's called The Water Cooler, where you can apply, join the community, and we have thousands and thousands of threads that folks from all over the world participate in on things like how to hire, how to fire, how to um, run your team meetings, how to deliver feedback you know, that's hard to deliver, uh, how do you think about promotions, all of that, right? And that started to get a ton of traction too, organically. So we were noticing all these things, noticing that the Know Your Company product itself was starting to flatten out. And we asked ourselves, wait a second, what's, what's going on? So as we dug into it, we realized who our audience really was and 
the true problem that they had wasn't just about, hey, I'm a CEO and I need to get feedback. It was actually bigger than that. It was, you know what, I'm actually a new manager or I'm a new or first time leader and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so that was the problem, right? And it's yeah. funny because it's just actually so deeply connected to the original problem that I told you about in my origin story, right? Of why I even started on this path. So what we decided to do is we did or rather what we realized is we have the almost opposite problem that most startups have, which is that usually you have a product, but you don't have a market. We realized we actually have a huge market, but our product doesn't really fit. So we decided to change the product. So we revamped the entire product, rebuilt it um, from the ground up. We changed our billing. We changed our pricing. We changed marketing, onboarding, everything. Rebranded the company as Know Your Team. And just about eight months ago became Know Your Team and focused on becoming software that actually helps managers become better. So all that context being said, Cody, <laughs> this is relevant to actually answering your, your question of sort of the lay of the land of the market. What's so interesting is this, we're at a time when I think companies are finally realizing that the linchpin of their success is predicated on the team itself and the linchpin of the team is a leader. There's sort of no greater tipping point of what and you know sort of funnels you down a path of either good performance or not good performance than the person who's corralling everyone together and this is you know shown in so many different studies whether it's through Gallup and HBR and sort of no shortage of, of statistics around this but what's I think most interesting is we're approaching a time where that is becoming slowly more and more conventional knowledge. So you see more and more companies investing in leadership training programs. You see more and more companies uh, looking to, to, you know, to solutions like, like Know Your Team. And what the issue has been is that the way you usually try to answer this question of how do you become a better leader, it's really archaic what the answers are. Like right now, most people would tell you, uh, maybe buy these books on Amazon <laughs> or yeah. go read HBR, you know, go read Harvard Business Review for a little bit. Or maybe what they'll tell you is they say, oh, you know what? You should hire an executive coach. And then you're like, wait, what? That's like super expensive. So like all of these solutions either don't really stick with you or they're really inaccessible. And actually for new managers, executive coaching actually tends not to be as effective. And I can share a bit some reasons for why that is. But point being is like a lot of the, the, the sort of available solutions are really defunct. So what we really thought about with Know Your Team is how do you actually help a manager become better where it is accessible, where it's actually practical, good information? Because sometimes a lot of these books too, oh my gosh, if, uh, oh, how many yeah. leadership books have we read, right? Where you're just like, oh my, okay, first of all, like this is only true for this one specific company, right? They're only speaking from that specific experience or it's just a complete platitude and generalization uh, and characterization of, of what they would like to be true. So we actually provide, you know, data-based resources. We provide tools to actually help you practice and apply this stuff. And then we give you a community, an online community with over a thousand managers to learn from. So the whole idea is a really integrated, holistic way to learn how to become a better manager at your own pace that is affordable and where you don't have to drop 10, you know, 10 grand for an executive coach. It's funny, isn't it? Because 
we, we were staring that problem in the face for a long time in terms of new leaders. And what we did was we promoted the top salesperson or the person that appeared the most capable and then wondered why they were having problems with, with leadership or yes. uh, gave them no opportunity to even be involved. Like the thing that still boggles my mind to this yes. day is mm-hmm. we hire people at 22 and then we don't, they don't get to have leadership bestowed upon them until they're about 40. Right. You have to, you have to rack up the tenure. And, right. and then once we get them to 40, we think that they understand the, our business or just the business landscape in general or their domain. And then we bestow leadership upon them. And then, so you could go, let's, let's say you're 39. You've come out of the, out of university at 22. So you've done 17 mm-hmm. years. You might not have sat in a job interview where you've actually done the interview at all in 17 years. You might not have sat in a one, you probably haven't sat in a one-on-one performance review of any stature for 17 years. You you know, tough one-on-one conversations. You might not have disciplined anyone. And and so it's, it's not these people's fault. Like the the frameworks and the systems that we've built have failed them. And, but, and we've just shoved them in there and said, but you knew how to sell before what's changed. It's, it's actually quite mind boggling the way that we even approach thinking about leadership within our own companies and the lack thereof of training around it. So to your point, so Gallup, which as you know, is really famous for pulling together really comprehensive studies, did one, they do one every year where it's like, it's over a million managers that they survey across, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies internationally. And they found that 80% of the time companies are promoting the wrong person to your point. And the reason 80% of the time, that's insane, right? And the reason is because they're promoting them, to your point, based off of characteristics that made them successful in an individual contributor role as opposed to characteristics that made them successful in uh, managerial roles. So there's that. So it, and then two, what was then coupled with that study was another study that they did around the natural talent that is required to be a good manager. So what they mean by this is sort of natural attributes and abilities. doesn't mean that you cannot learn it. You could definitely learn these things, but just out of the gate, how likely are people to have these attributes? And there are things like around decision-making and rapport and um, you know, judgment. And they found that only one in 10 managers today have the natural ability out of the gate meaning that we're promoting usually the wrong people. And then the likelihood that these people that we're even promoting for them to even have out of the gate, these attributes to be successful in these roles, it's one in 10. So now to your point, of course, we're setting these folks up for, for complete failure, not to mention least of all what you described that we do not put people in situations for them to also practice this stuff to become here. So like the perfect sports analogy, you know, I think of, I mean, can you imagine trying to learn how to be a good swimmer without ever getting in a pool <laughs> or being thrown into a pool, right? And then saying breaststroke, go, right? That's, that's not how you learn how to swim. Yet we do that with leadership. That's literally what we do. 
And not only do we do that, we throw someone in the pool and we say, you know, breaststroke, backstroke, you know, down the pool, back. And the person's just like, no, I don't even know how to float. Like, wait, wait, like you you didn't even, like the lack of support and training and context and the ability to practice, that doesn't happen. It doesn't, no. And this is, again, this kind of the catalyst idea of all of my work and and anyone that's followed me knows that, you know, I, I harp on this a lot, but I, I just think it, the whole thing, it deserves a rethink. And, and the, the great news is, is that we're not that yeah. far away. There's some archaic frameworks that exist. You know, there's, there's things that need to be done away with, but I think we're getting better at it. We're getting better at recognizing totally. what leadership is. There's a lot more discussion around it, which is great. And it's not just yeah, Harvard yeah. Business Review anymore. You don't need a subscription to, to know this anymore. It's there. It's in your Absolutely. face. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this is really, this has been the thrust and the inspiration for me starting and running Know Your Team, which is that the, the problem with actually most of the content that exists is that it's usually based on only one specific perspective and data point, right? So it's, uh, I mean, frankly, it's a lot of <laughs> the folks you've had on your, you know, your show before, right? It's Howard Schultz saying, this is how I built Starbucks. You know, it's, um, you know, Patty McCord saying, this is what we did at Netflix, which are both valid, right? But the right. thing that we forget to do when we share these pieces of information is we forget to share context. We forget to say, hey, this is going to work when your company reaches a certain scale of 5,000 to 10,000 employees, or, Hey, this is only going to work if you've got a mixture of remote and in-person and folks and you're at, you know, 200 to 300 people. And so what we really try hard and what I try really hard as I, as I think of how to distill this information is how do we give context as to what works? Cause a lot of things work and a lot of things don't work. And the magic about leadership isn't that there is a way. The magic about leadership, like what makes you actually good at leadership is understanding what works in what actual particular situation. It's all about context. Couldn't agree more. Uh, again, people that have read my book and listened to my stuff know how big I am on context yeah. as well. There's a, a, another subchapter yeah. about contextual leadership. <laughs> and even yes. to the point where I, to a certain extent, I challenge because of the sports background, I almost challenge science in a way in saying that in Mm. leadership it doesn't need to be able to be replicated like the the occurrence makes it real now whether whether the new england patriots ever win again does not matter because it it was proven to have worked whatever that it happened so that that one off and and that is so unscientific and i i understand that and what i've tried to do is is really strip out those core lessons and say, yeah, if you are in this kind of scenario, if you have right. a stable a stable organization with a great owner who has hired a, 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 an amazing head coach 20 years ago right. that's had the same quarterback for 20 years that, you know, that's the context that we need to be latching onto, not just buying into the, you know, great leaders do this one thing headline. Mm-hmm. Yep. The headline, the dogma. That, I agree. Yeah, that we miss that so often. We, we really do. Yeah. We, we miss it a lot. And, um, but you know, again, it's so easy for us. And, and I love your blog for that particular reasons because you do really go into it. And one in particular is probably my favorite blog that you've done was, how to, oh. how to onboard a new hire. Well, thank you. And 
it hit the nail on the head. I've never seen a piece of content around particularly onboarding and you included, you know, emails and things like that that you sent to her. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, no, that means a lot, Cody. And I, I appreciate the fact that you noticed how, yeah, we try really hard to incorporate context because, um, yeah, I think failure modes exist when we assume that just because one thing's worked for one person, it will work for everyone. Now, what's interesting is that being said, when we, you know, at Know Your Team, we've looked at our data that we've collected over the past five years across thousands and thousands of employees and managers. Now, there definitely are themes, right, and tenants, oh, yeah. right, that do hold true. And so, one of the things that's really interesting and, you know, happy to get into it is we've identified three main areas that we found the most successful leaders to really invest in. And so, that's been, that's been really interesting. Let's do that then. Why wait? Yeah. Let's, let's dive into it. <laughs> For sure. So, and curious to get your, your contributions and engagement on this too, especially from a sports perspective. So the first key tenant that we've noticed that all really successful leaders tend to invest in is trust rapport and the belief that someone is going to do what they actually say is foundational to any sort of productive work or progress being made. So that's the first thing, trust. The second is context. So knowing why am I doing something? Where are we going? What are other people doing? What's my role and how this all fits into the bigger picture? That context is everything as well. It gives, I mean, as humans, like we were directionally challenged. We, we feel like there's no sort of importance in anything that we're doing if we don't understand to what extent we fit into the bigger picture. So that context is key. So that's two, context. And then third is honesty. So the way that we communicate with each other being transparent, truthful, uh, and revealing both about what we think could be better, about what's working, what's not working. I mean, honest, I mean, or, or the, the context and the trust doesn't happen unless we're able to communicate honestly. So that's the, that's the third piece that we've noticed that uh, the best leaders tend to excel in is, is honesty and communicating honestly. So it's trust, context, and, and honesty. Have you noticed that to, to be true in, in sports teams to any extent? Yeah, it's funny. So I've been really big on sustained success recently and I'm trying to distill yes. the lessons across different sports at different levels and find those pillars of success and I don't necessarily mean winning because we tend to in sports go there we go straight to the the patriots but an organization can have sustained success talking of context within their own context Yes. And, and never win a trophy or a medal during that period. So they can yes. you know, be a small budget team that makes the playoffs six years in a row. To me, that is sustained success. So I, I really want to look at what are those common denominators as well as looking at the Chicago Bulls and, and their six titles and, and, and you know, patch right. in all, all the different things. And so to answer your question, I think absolutely. And I, I think what you are about to see in sports is a wholehearted move to what you've just described, trust, context, and honesty. 
you're going to see old school managers, uh, old school coaches leaving and they are, they're already starting to be replaced by high EQ, um, yeah. probably, you know, um, I don't want to say necessarily, uh, they have less experience, but, um, their experience is, is more on the human side. There's, there's, you know, they don't necessarily need to have played the game, but they come in and they're just what, what we used to call a player's coach in yes. that they do build that trust and they're down in the locker room with them celebrating, you know, what did you do well? What did you, what did you not do well? They understand the context because they're down there with the players and, and they understand mm-hmm. how to lead them and they understand the differences in language. They understand the differences and, and the different contexts of generations. And, mm-hmm. and so you can only get that by being in there with, with the players. And then yes. again, the, the, the big thing, and I've spoken at sports leadership conferences about this, the honesty piece yeah. is that the thing used to be, that the coach was an entity into him or herself and they would pass down, you know, curfew is this time and all the players need to be back in the hotel room by that time. Those days are gone too. Yeah. Very command and control. Yeah. Now it's our curfew is 10 PM and the, the, the coach, needs to kind of be a high performing athlete themselves because they're going to make better decisions if they've had sleep as well. And, right. and, and so that, that honesty piece, that's where I think you're seeing a lot of the, the disruption in, in just society in general around millennials is I think millennials are kind of calling bullshit on a lot of those rules. Mm. CEO, yes. CEO, CEO says this one thing, but they weren't there with us. They weren't, you know, coach said this one thing, but then, why was he out smoking and, and drinking booze until 2 a.m.? Um, yeah. So you're either with us or against us. And that comes back to that honesty piece. So long way Absolutely. of answering your question. I, I couldn't agree more. It, I, I love hearing those insights into the sports world because it's, you know, something I'm a little bit less, uh, you know, involved with obviously compared to yourself for sure. And I think one of the things that particularly struck me as you were talking is you you said that you feel like a shift was happening because of a focus on this idea of sustained success. So truly actually a redefinition of how people in sports are are viewing success. It's not the short-term wins, but the long-term, long-term wins and the long-term sustainability of the organization. And what I find so remarkable about that is that in many ways, that mindset shift is actually the same mindset shift that has to happen in order for the leader themselves to be successful. So I talked to so, yeah, I talked to so many CEOs and and managers, Cody, where they've revealed to me that the hardest part of their transition from being an individual to an individual to a, to manager wasn't actually the the work itself. It wasn't doing one-on-one meetings. It wasn't holding staff meetings. It wasn't actually the act of firing someone. I mean, that's very difficult, no doubt. It's the, of course, right? But it's actually not the, the, the tasks that are so difficult. The hardest part of that transition is actually the shift in mindset because what happens when you become an individual contributor or from an individual contributor to a manager is that your mind shift changes in terms of what that definition of success is. When you are an employee, your definition of success is I'm doing good work. 
I'm fast and reliable and I have all the answers. That's your definition of success. The minute you become a manager, that completely changes. All of a sudden, your individual output as a manager really doesn't matter. That's not success. You having all the answers as a manager is not success. You being fast as a manager, that's not success. Success for you as a manager is your team being able to perform and get to the outcomes that you set out. And so that shift is, is, is different. It means that everyone, you know, feeling like they like you doesn't matter as much. It means, you know, you actually sending certain emails doesn't matter. So that, that shift in success and defining that and, and that mindset uh, difference I mean, similar to, to what you described for these organizations shift in mindset. I mean, that's, it's a similar shift that happens on, a, on an individual level for, for a leader, for them to be successful. Brene Brown has a quote in Dare to Lead, and she's talking yeah. about her getting into leadership. And she talks about the difference between researching leadership and actual leadership. And... <laughs> And it, I was listening to the audio book and I, I rewound it. It must've been a hundred times. I, I probably, I know you can't break, like you could break cassette tapes, but I was getting close <laughs> to, to that. The amount of times I listened to it, I, I think it was particularly poignant because a, it's coming from her. She, she's a researcher. And so it's easy to come out and say, here's how it's done. One, two, and three, I've done the studies and all the data points to this and, and these things, but then to also be in the trenches and, and the, mm-hmm the final part of her sentence is it's kind of this dot, dot, dot moment. And then she says, Oh, and also the sleepless nights. And (laughs) for me that hit home because to what you were just talking about there, I was a, a reasonably high level player in my sport. And now I've been coaching the national team in Canada for the last seven years and being a coach of you know, we have 24 guys on our team. It's like having 24 kids. And so when she said the sleepless nights thing, that yes. hit home to me so much. And, and I think, you know, we don't even really talk about that for that first time manager is that you do have that switch. You have to care about everyone else and their yep. performance and whether you've set them up for success. And if there's a big presentation or a big game or you know, yeah. you've, you've got to have set them up for success. And if not, you haven't done your job and you, you can't dive in there and necessarily do it for them. And, and you're right, that mindset switch almost overnight for a lot of people is incredibly difficult. And, it's, yep. and, and that's what so I mean hard. is like everyone puts yeah. Brene Brown up on this pedestal and then she's, she comes out and obviously she studies vulnerability, but it's like <laughs> this shit is hard for everyone. This shit is hard for everyone. And I think the, you know, the other thing that I find, so first of all, I'm just like, oh good, Brené Brown also stays up at night. Good, good. <laughs> this is, this is, this is comforting. You know, there, she's human. That's good. Um, <laughs> no, but I, the, the other thing that, that really, um, yeah, just really, really formed a groove for me, Cody, as you were speaking to, was you alluded to the aspect of personal accountability that a coach has to imbue in their actions and then the personal accountability that Brene Brown as well, right? Mm-hmm. Imbued in 
in the way that she led. And that's something that uh, we think a lot about at Know Your Team, something I've written about extensively of how leaders are actually a unit of modeling. Like that's actually what leadership is. Leadership's really a unit of modeling. It's completely difficult to, and actually this goes back maybe to what I was talking about at the very, very beginning of this podcast, right? Of the example you shared with Jason Mm -hmm. uh, writing this very vulnerable blog, um, job posting. And that's something that they espouse as being very vulnerable. He's walking the talk. He's personally modeling what he would like to be true in the organization. And uh, one of the things that we recommend, you know, heavily for, for CEOs and, and managers is to ask yourself, how am I personally modeling what I want to be true for my team? And your answer to that is usually very revealing. So for example, I interviewed um, Will Larson on our podcast, uh, The Heartbeat. Uh, and yeah, you're familiar with it. I, I interview a leader who I respect, um, you know, every few weeks. And, and Will, he's the head of foundation engineering at Stripe. And he was telling me, you know, Claire, I was looking at our organization thinking, huh, it's really rigid. Huh, that's not good. Okay, hmm, what's going on here? And he realized it's rigid because I'm rigid. He realized <laughs> that he was personally modeling, right? The, the very thing that he didn't want to be true, but that's what he was doing. And therefore, the organization responded accordingly. And so... I think being very cognizant and intentional and asking that question of, am I personally modeling the things that I would like to be true as a leader is it's, it's paramount. I know we've got to get you out of here, but I want to ask you because again, you wrote a a fantastic blog about the importance of sharing the vision as a leader. And, Ah, And the reason I bring this up is because (laughs) we've all read start with why and we, we know that and everyone's going there. I've watched a couple of organizations I'm working with that are big, big, big Canadian companies go through that shift literally in the last couple of months. But Hmm. what, what I think we've already forgotten is that just because we've said it once, and and this is even at, at a, at a more micro level with, within teams, you know, the reiteration of that, that vision I think is really important. And I think we've almost forgotten that already that it needs to be kind of this daily practice or, 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 you know, reiterated regularly so that we continue to refine the direction that we're going and making sure we're heading in the right direction. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what did you find or what have you found in terms of the importance of sharing vision for leaders? Yes. I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. I think it is, it's, it's truly one of the most overlooked aspects of leadership is the importance of vision. So we, we ran a study um, this past fall where we surveyed, it wasn't a huge sample size, it was about 355 or so people just this past fall, and we asked them what they felt was the number one piece of information that was necessary for managers to share in a team. And the number one thing they said that managers should be sharing in a team was vision. 
So there you have it there, just in terms of it's not decisions, it's not progress, it's not institutional knowledge, it's vision, right? So just, just based off those responses. And once you dug a bit, you know, once you dig a bit deeper, so amongst thousands of managers that we work with, you actually find that most people, the problem actually with sharing vision is that actually most people don't even know what vision is, <laughs> uh, which, which isn't their fault. It's, the vision no. is such, it's like the word culture. Or like innovation, <laughs> yeah. you throw it around, and we're like, "What, what is, is it? What is it really?" And I don't. I think I don't. I think I know what it is. So, vision. Here's the thing: vision is not mission, right? Mission is why you're doing something, or rather, sorry, excuse me. Mission is what you are doing, right? Uh, vision is also not purpose. Purpose is why you're doing something. So this would be aligned with with you know Simon Sinek's work. And vision is also not values, which it's often uh, conflated with. Values is actually how you do your work. So you could say simplicity, passion, etc. So vision is none of those things. What vision actually is is a place. Vision is a picture of a better place. It's a world that you believe will exist because of the work that you're doing. And the reason that distinction is so incredibly important is because when you think about what's going to motivate your team the most, it's going to be this picture of a better place. If you were going to think about what is going to clarify and decentralize decisions the most, it's going to be a picture of a better place that you're getting to. It's not necessarily going to be your values and it's not necessarily going to be your mission. It's going to be this, this vision. And so around decisions, around motivation, that's why vision is so essential. And then also alignment. You have to, like, it's the only way to make sure that the things of why people are doing things and what they're working on is all falling into place is if they understand ultimately that picture of a better place of where they're trying to, to go. So that's the big thing that so many managers overlook is they actually, they talk about values. You know, they say, hey, we should be conscientious. We should be um, compassionate, right? Those are values. They talk about the why. They talk about their purpose saying, oh, you know, we exist as an organization to help people. They talk about their mission, but they don't often talk about what the result is of their work, that picture of a better place. So that's, that's vision. And to your point, Cody, so because people don't really know what it is, it's actually really hard to repeat it and communicate it if you don't really know what it is. Right. Uh, so figuring out what it is, first of all, committing to that, knowing that you might not always know it. Uh, two, then finding ways to really over-communicate vision all the time. And the, most, the two most sort of tactical places to do that is during your all-team meetings, right? So how do you connect vision to your goals? How do you connect vision to projects? How do you connect vision to decisions and and um, projects that you're working on on a week to week basis. And then talking and connecting vision uh, to your one-on-one -on -one meetings individually with employees. So, you know, what about the direction of the team concerns you asking that question? Um, if, you know, you, someone asked to you, know, you to describe the company's vision, would a clear answer come to mind? Um, these are actually questions that we actually provide in Know Your Team. We have a whole one-on-ones template and one-on-ones tool, but it's so interesting how often we don't think about the ways, to your point, of figuring out, one, what vision is, and then also communicating it. That is so magnificent. I, I love that. And, and I hadn't actually thought about it to that degree, like you just described, in terms of painting the vision of what the world actually looks like. And, and I was going back and in my head thinking about even Simon's 
TED talk where, you know, he kind of goes on riffs on Apple and it's, you know, their why is to you know, challenge the status quo and everything we do. And, and that's fine. But to your point, that doesn't paint a picture of what the world looks like. Exactly. That's when, actually not, yeah, not a vision, right? You know, Apple's such an intriguing example because what makes them so good at what they do is their vision is actually extremely, extremely clear. So, you know, like you said, their, uh, you know, their mission or their purpose or their why is about challenging the status quo. You would argue potentially that Apple's values are things like simplicity and beauty, right? Or design or whatnot. Um, but their vision is so distinct. Like the way they actually motivate their staff is they can paint a very clear picture or they ask their staff to think about when they are designing, for example, the UI on a new phone or the packaging on a new MacBook can you imagine what that person's reaction is when they're opening that package or when they're swiping, you know, and using that, that user interaction? So the idea is to orient completely around what is that picture of a better place? What does the world look like with people enjoying and interacting with Apple? And that's what gets people excited, like that picture of a better place. And they do a really, really good job articulating that. And that in itself is what leads to, in my opinion, their, their sustained success. Couldn't agree more. And sorry to the Canadians, but that is the element that crushed BlackBerry because BlackBerry <laughs> thought that they could replicate the, the interfaces and the cool technology, but they hadn't thought through the emotion. And their emotion, their swipes and, and the unboxing that Apple has was actually in what they already had which was mm. people really emotionally tied and still are like even things like the keyboard, which seems stupid. Like that mm -hmm. was their emotional connection. And uh, so anyway, maybe I, I, I uh, probably annoyed a lot of, <laughs> they're just down the road in, in, in Kitchener Waterloo. So I, I won't speak too badly about Blackberry, <laughs> but <laughs> they likely liked, liked vision. I'll send them an email after this and I'll let them know. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours upon hours, Claire, but I know we've got to wrap up. So where can people find you socially? Where can they find your blog? And then if they want to know more about Know Your Team, how can they get in touch with you? Or what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'd love for, for folks who, who want to get in touch. You can follow me on Twitter at Claire J. Lou, L-E-W. Um, I post a lot of stuff, uh, just things I'm thinking about or reading about um, or researching around leadership and management. So that's always a good place to, to get in touch with me. Or you can also just shoot me a note directly at Claire at KnowYourTeam.com. I'm always happy to answer questions, take emails. And we also have our own podcast as well, as along with our blog uh, that I mentioned that's all about leadership and you can find that at knowyourteam.com backslash blog and then if yeah you yourself are a manager who found yourself maybe nodding along to the, some of the things that Cody and I've said I love the the chance for you to check out know your team so you just can go to knowyourteam.com and and give us a spin see what you think Claire let's do this again would love that thank you so much again for having me Cody no not a problem thank you